All right. Well, if you don't mind, uh, welcome to Redstone again. Uh, you should have uh, the scripture for today printed on your bulletin. Uh, if not, uh, you can pull out your scriptures and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, or if you're following along in our little uh, little black books here, uh, we've been uh, studying through this. This is just uh, the scripture in journal form. And so you can pull out these uh, two chapter 7 chapter 7. Uh, I want to give props before we get started to what we call uh, the sermon prep uh, team. On Mondays every afternoon, uh, whether you know it or not, there's a group of men and women that gather on Monday afternoons just to dissect the scripture uh, together and help prep for the sermon. And so uh, we hope that it's not just my words that are coming across, but uh, hopefully this is what, what, what we feel that the Lord is doing all throughout our community. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago when we were studying this passage, the question is, should we preach all of chapter 7 in one grouping or should we split it up? Um, you are soon going to find out that the second half of Ecclesiastes is a very hard text. And so my vote was, hey, let's just get through it in just one big setting. And there was some major pushback from the sermon prep team and they said, hey, no, let's, call, let's slow down. Let's make it two separate sermons because we believe that God is working in the whole chapter and we don't want to miss anything. And so we're walking into this sermon because sermon prep team have said, hey, let's slow down. Let's actually tackle the hard things and let's see what the Lord has to do for us. And so on behalf of um, the sermon prep team, you just need to thank God and uh, thank the staff and others who are committed to the word and committed to sensing the Lord's leadership. We are here today, not in chapter 8, but the second half of, of chapter 7 because of them. And so anyway, just, just know that we believe in the preaching of God's word and we really do want to walk through it slowly and securely. And, and here we go. So chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 16 and following um, this is how, or sorry, verse 15 and following. Ecclesiastes 17 says this. This is King Solomon writing to us underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. King Solomon says this. In my vain life, I have seen everything. King Solomon is an observer and he looks out on the horizon of all of life. And it says here in a very boastful way, I have seen it all. And so we we're about to glean some, of, some more of his observations. And he says this, There is a righteous, there is a righteous man who perishes, who dies, who comes to the end of himself, who perishes in his righteousness. And then... There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doings. It's here and here alone that Solomon gives us a great quandary. Like how in the world is it possible for the righteous person not to live a long and full life? And yet a wicked man is able to live a long and prosperous life. How is this even possible? Solomon goes on to says, says this, Be not overly righteous, and do not make for yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17 says, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand 
For the one who fears God shall overcome both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it, this is the wisdom, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the schemes of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the schemes of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See? This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of God. And so, King Jesus, we pray that as we open up your word, that we will do it rightly, that we will sit underneath your throne and that we will sit underneath your power. We will see as Solomon has seen. And for that, that you will open up avenues of grace and that you will open up avenues of wherewithal to understand the the world underneath the sun. God, we believe that your spirit spoke through Solomon. And because of that, we have been able to see as he has seen. So allow us to come underneath that now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was a father, and he said something like this. He said, In that moment, I remember nothing. It was the most pain that I've ever felt in my life. I immediately, in that moment, I lost all sight. In fact, I couldn't even see my hands that was right in front of me. I even couldn't feel my toes. I felt like my back was on fire. I ended up asking the question, why? Why did this have to happen? You see, merit was his firstborn. She was the bright one. She was the amazing one. She had all the curiosity of the family. She wanted to see the world, and she was fearless. She came to her parents the day after graduation. She says, I want to do something. I want to bike across America. I want to ride a bike all across America. The father questions this, and he says, who would want to spend six weeks of their summer to ride 3,000 miles on a tiny triangle called a bike seat? Nobody, except for a girl named Merritt. If you ever see one of these bike tours, it's hard to miss. Some people call it like a, a, a circus on wheels. Midway through the bike across America, Merritt's father gets a phone call from the organization that puts on the trip. There had been an accident. 
Merritt's injuries were severe. Her injuries were life-threatening, and she was now on life support. It was a clear and a gorgeous day in the middle of the summer. As wings lifted, the rescue, um, the rescue first responders, they looked around and said, how could you miss a group of bikes on such a day like this? It was a huge backpack of bikers. How could this happen? There were no skid marks at the scene of the accident. There were no other cars even on the highway. There was just one car who had run into the entourage. The only thing that was left behind was a 21-year-old and his phone records. There were text messages at 4 o'clock. There were more text messages at 4.01 and then 4.02 and then 4.03 and then a call to 911. Merritt's young life did come to an end, taken by a distracted driver, leaving behind a parent's grief, a parent to ask the question, why? Why should someone so young die? And then look around the world at all the atrocities and all of the wickedness and all of the rulers and all of the bad things that we've seen in life and said, why could you not have taken those lives rather than my child's life? King Solomon looks at the merits of the world and these types of situations. And he comes and he asks the question in verse 15. I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And yet there's a wicked man who's able to live a long, prosperous, wonderful life even in his evil doing. And the cruel reality of this one verse is that there are way too many beautiful, wonderful people who die young. And yet we can look around at all the cranky, old, rich, decrepit, mean people who've lived a long and happy life. The way we say it, say it here in 2019 is, is simply this. We say, I think, we say it like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? We say it all the time. Or why do good things happen to bad people? That's what we say. What we've said is the same thing that Solomon would say, is that I'm looking at all of this, and what is supposed to be right is now looking very wrong. And the things that look very, very wrong are looking like they're going unpunished altogether. And it's just not right. King Solomon is writing to God's people, the people of Israel. And was it not God himself who pressed into this very issue? It's God who says, first and foremost, that if you keep my law, I will prolong your life. So God is saying, this is not even right. This is not how I want it. He even says in, his, in, the, first, in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and what? So that your days may be elongated. He says this, you will live by my commands, and you will live your life, and it will go well with you. So these are God quoting himself. However, what Solomon is looking and what he's witnessing uh, seems to be a few outliers. That maybe, just maybe, life doesn't turn out the way that we think it should. And maybe bad things really do happen to good people. While the good, bad people just seem like they're getting away. God himself starts the, 
the Bible with four humans, Adam, Eve, and two brothers, Cain and Abel. And if you know anything about that first story is that Cain is the unrighteous person. He's the wicked person. And he comes along, maybe behind his brother Abel, and he strikes him dead. And so there you have it. The young one, full of righteous, murdered by the one who seems to have lived, married, and had his own cities to his own sake. Even the way that we open up the New Testament and the new church movement, the youngest, brightest star in Christianity, his name is Stephen. He's a young man, full of wisdom, full of righteousness. And what do we see in the early chapters of Acts is that Stephen's life he is ended quickly blunted early, not because of something he did wrong, but because of living for righteousness. Even today, there are missionaries all over planet Earth who are ending their lives either snuffed out by the atrocities of this world or even dying of, like, of, of a disease. But either way, we're able to look and say, why are the righteous ones, why are the good ones perishing? While the people who seem to get a new lot on life are the ones who have done something bad. Solomon comes to this quandary and says, why in the world is there a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs in his evil doing?" And he comes to that and he says, there's got to be some way or there's got to be some way that we wrestle with this thing. And he says that there is a temptation for both of us or for us. As we look at this, we are tempted to go one of two ways or maybe we go one way and then we go the next. But either way, we, we're tempted to do something. We're tempted, verse 16, that says is to not be overly righteous. That's a funny phrase to us. And do not be overly wise. You can be a little wise or a little righteous, but don't be overly righteous, he says. We are tempted in these moments or in these questions to actually overcompensate and over be good good in these moments. And we're striving after something. And then it says that there's actually a problem with this. Why should you destroy yourself? There's a caution. That overly righteous or, and overly wise is actually something that will bring you to destruction. He says, be careful with that. Verse 17 says this, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. And so this is the second temptation, is to give up altogether and just to be wicked or a fool. And then there's another condition there. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should hold on to this. And this is this, this idea that there are paths that there is a temptation. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And that word both is where we're coming to today. Is that there's two paths. And there's a way and that what we need to, to be aware of. Is that when we look at the righteous coming to an end. Or when we look at the wickedness come and, and, and prosper. We are tempted to take two paths. First, we are tempted to first and foremost, to try harder. And that's what it means to be overly righteous or overly wise or self-righteous or super-religious. All of these hyper-religious. I mean, you could, just, you could go on and on and on with all these symptoms, uh, synonyms. But when you're, when you're here, you're tempted simply to try harder. And to simply become super-righteous. Hyper-religious. Whatever that is. Just know this is in you. 
The way the text reads, it's, it's less this or that, but maybe even a continuation. Because you will be tempted to go on this path. And then secondly, when this comes to an end, because it will, you're tempted to just to give up completely. Just to say, why even bother? I want, I'll just start doing whatever I want to do. And so what Solomon says to this is that that's actually super wicked. And so our two paths are this idea of being super righteous and super wicked. Hyper righteous, hyper wicked. Good, good, right? And wicked, bad. Whatever you want to say, but this is the temptation for us. We want to try harder. Or we just want to give up. But either way, Solomon is very clear in verse 18 that God wants us to come out from both of them. These are two potholes that he wants us to, uh, to avoid. Okay, so here's what we've got, some, uh, some structure here. Verse 19 all the way through 24 is a first section. And this is where we're going to be. We're going to see our hyper-righteousness, our super-righteousness in those verses. And then you've got another carom or another, another uh, set of verses starting in 25 all the way through the end of the chapter. I've got brackets around mine just to make sure that I realize that, that Solomon is doing some sequential things. So first and foremost, verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers are to the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take all, uh, or sorry, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, I said. I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been, uh, what been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? So first and foremost, being overly righteous. Solomon is warning us not to be overly righteous. Some of you know your Bibles pretty well, and you realize that it is Jesus who says some things about righteousness that actually brings it to like the, the good side of our life. It's Jesus who says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteous, right? It's for righteousness. And so here we are, we're like, okay, so what's the deal here? I would want you to go back to verse 15. It says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. He's not saying that righteousness is not something that we should be striving for. It's when we go too far and we actually become too righteous or too wise. And we're trying to add to it. This is the warning. So how does he start? He starts with a proverb. Verse 19. He says, wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. First thing he says is that wisdom is good. Let's not divorce the fact that overly righteous is not divorced from wisdom. That wisdom is a good thing. And he gives this little parable about a city who has wise men. And that there's ten rulers or ten elders of this city. It would have taken time and energy and effort to be able to gather ten elders to run this city. These rulers who, are, who have the power to give, to give a safety and security or to bring damaging, to be able to, to prosper in wealth or then also to bring poverty. This is the power of, of uh, rulers. And we want rulers, we want elders to run our cities. 
But then he says this, there's something better than 10 rulers of a city. It says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And so if you're going after to be a ruler or an elder of a church or a city, that's okay. But there's something that will distinguish even that. And this thing is called wisdom. And then we go on to to verse 20. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who who does good and never sins. He then says that wisdom is good, and yet wisdom is not perfection. I want you to notice the conjunction there, this idea of surely. Surely is, is a conjunction in Hebrew, so it is actually gluing these two things apart. Where it's easy to read these things separately, what Solomon wants you to do is that there is a continuation. Wisdom is good, but it is not perfection. Surely there is not a righteous man. The way the New Testament would say, there is no one righteous, no, not one. This is the Old Testament equivalent of that, is that none of us are, was, uh, are, 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 are perfect. We can't do it. And so why pursue being overly righteous when you know that there's not, not anything that you can find there? And so, gaining is, uh, wisdom is a good thing. Having wisdom is a good thing. However, wisdom has its limitations. You can have truckloads of wisdom. You can have all these things, but wisdom will not make you perfect. And what we are striving for is perfection, and we will never, ever, ever attain it. That's why we lean on Jesus and his perfect light for us. So Solomon, pre-Jesus, is warning us that the pursuit of overly righteous is to outstretch or to outpunt your coverage or to go too far. It's not even possible to do that. For all have sinned, all have sinned. That is where we're at. And so do you get yourself out of trouble, right, if you use wisdom principles? Yes. Are you able to dodge some things in life if you live a righteous life? Absolutely. However, are you able to navigate the sticky, wicked ways of this world and be perfect? Absolutely not. And that's why, that's why it says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who is able to do good and never sin. In fact, in the Hebrew, this is what they would call an imperfect tense, meaning that it's continuous, it's regular, it's just over and over and over. As one commentary says this, and this is kind of pithy, so it might be worth writing down, even the wise and the righteous are never, ever perfectly wise or righteous. And so that's why this pursuit of being overly righteous is a vain pursuit. We are universally sinners, and that's who we are. It then gets interesting, and he starts to talk about our words. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you overhear or hear your servant cursing you. This is fun. You, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And so, what do we see? We see the sin of a tongue. And the New Testament, Old Testament says that our tongue gets us into trouble. There's cursing, there's gossip, there's all types of things here. And so, we just need to understand that words will get us into trouble, and all of us use words. And so, all of our words that we use that are sideways will prove that we're not righteous. Does that make sense? And so, that's how it fits. 
Yes, it's good, and no, it's not perfection, and yet the things that we use on a daily basis, our words, those are the things that are going to get us into trouble. And so what Solomon is saying here is you cannot take yourself too seriously. Your words are going to get you in trouble. We have all sinned in this way. There's these servants. So if you're, you're here and you are in oversight over somebody, if you're a boss of some sort, you're now overhearing a conversation that you, those people are having about you, and it's not that great. And so you, what you have here is don't take, all, take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear that your servants are cursing you. These guys are just ramrodding the, the, the boss to death. I mean, they're just throwing him or her under the bus over and over and over. And on your best days, we will, uh, we will not do the things that we want to do as well as we would want it to do. And when we don't do the things that we want to do well enough, the people that we are in charge of will find those things and find those gaps and be able to bring those to light. And the things that are brought to light, the things that we don't want to do but we actually do, or the things that we want to do that we don't end up doing, the things that are brought to light, those things are the, actually the things that sting the most because those are the things that you were actually trying not to do or to do, and yet those are the things that we didn't do or that we did do. Does that make sense? And so then we're so curious as to what they have to think about us that we put our ears to a door, that we try to hear what they have to say about us, hoping, just hoping, that they don't say the things that we don't want to do or the but instead the things that we want to hear them do. And yet what we hear are the things, the critics, are the things, that, the criticisms that we haven't done are the things that we wanted to do that we just didn't get to. And what we hear is we actually hear the truth. And what we hear are the things that actually hurt the most. Words really do get us in trouble. But the fact is, even if we're in here, we just will never get it right. So Solomon understands this principle, that we just cannot get it right. And so whether you're a servant, right, they're going to talk bad about you. But even if you're the boss, right, you're going to be, you're going to be completely guilty yourself. Your heart knows that many times you yourself, you're the one who's going to curse others. People are going to curse you and you're going to curse them. It's back and forth and back and forth. And this is proof that we're all, we're all in trouble. And then lastly, here we see that wisdom is limited. Wisdom is limited. All this I have tested by wisdom and said, verse 23, I will be wise. And there's like just uh, in my mind or in my heart, he's like, this is why I've given my life, is that I will be wise. And we know, because Kings tells us, you know that Solomon is, was, I mean, more wise than anybody that's ever walked the earth minus Jesus. He says, I will be wise. And then there's the conjunction that stabs all of us. But even for King Solomon, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? And so wisdom is limited and it's on purpose. Because wisdom was built that way. We are supposed to be finite. We're supposed to be limited. Because we're not God. And so in our pursuits of being overly righteous, we try to, to stop being finite. 
We're trying to stop, be limited. We're trying to be a know-it-all. We're trying to be omnipresent and all-knowing, and that's simply not our job. Wisdom even escapes the wise. That even the wisest person, that wisdom even escapes it. It is too far and it's too deep. Who can find it? The answer is, of course, no one. This is part of God's plan for us because he's the one who's all-knowing, not us. And we should actually rejoice in our limitations because God has established it this way. He's the one that has made the world mysterious. He's the one who has made and created the world to be unknowable. This is a part of his design because this limited nature actually makes us better worshipers. If we don't have this, then we're all-knowing. We don't need God, and God knows we need us. And so why pursue it overly? Why be overly wise? Because you simply won't do it. And so he draws these vertical lines and these horizontal lines, and he says, like the ocean, you can look on and on and on to the horizon, and you just won't get there. Or you can go deep, 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 and you can never find it. Isaiah Isaiah 55 says it this way, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That's a vote of confidence for us and our limited nature, and our finite, that his ways are higher than our ways. And then my thoughts are higher than his thoughts. Don't be overly righteous. Don't try to be too wise. Why? Because it will end in destruction. Because the end in destruction is the fact that you have a God complex, and you want to be God. Solomon is trying to, to work that out of us. The second path is that we try to be overly wicked. Look at this. Verse 25 says it this way. I, um, I turned in my heart to know, right? That's kind of the first circle, the thing that I would circle. And to search, I would, cir- I would circle that. And to seek wisdom, I would cir- that, circle that. And verse 26, and I will find something. And then on 27, behold, this is the thing that I have found. On in 28, I have not found. We know that King Solomon is on the search. And he wants to find some things. And he's about to reveal to us the three things that he found out. That when we stop trying so hard, we will likely just give up. Have you ever been there? Where you've tried and tried and tried and tried and just didn't work, uh, work out. And you just finally said, why even bother? This is our heart on, in print. And King Solomon is saying, you will try you will get to the end of yourself and then you'll just throw your hands up and you won't care anyway anymore. And then you will have a quick slide to becoming overly wicked. There's three things that he found to us. This idea of scheming or the schemes or the scheming of wickedness. Number one, he says that we will. We will give into temptation. This is what we will do. Verse 26 says, says this, and I find something more bitter than death. That's a pretty bitter thing, is it, for it to be more bitter than death. And this is what he finds. He finds the woman whose heart is the snares, plural, the nets, plural, and whose hands are fetters, plural. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. The very first thing that we see 
is when we slide away from being overly righteous, Solomon says, just get ready. The capital T, the big T, is coming for us. Is that when we give up, temptation is at our doorstep. This is in the feminine, looking at the males, but it's both ways. That we are all tempted towards sensuality. We're tempted to do things with our bodies and our minds that God has not designed us to do. And what Solomon is warning us against is beware. Because there are, there's, this, there's this mechanism, or there are these gadgets, or there's these things that will literally trap you, or ensnare you, or grab you, and we will not let you go. There are a plurality of nets that will capture you. There's an entirety of plurality of snares that will grab you. There are, there's an, entire, an abundance of fetters or chains that will hold you down and hold you back. Yes, you want to pursue God and everything, but when you become overly righteous and you know that there's an end to yourself, know that there is a temptation that will be on your doorstep. And she has got schemes beyond schemes. And he or she is ready to capture you. We need to understand that these two paths both lead to destruction. And he is giving one of the strongest warnings and the most descript. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little feet, where they go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Because temptation is there on the front doorstep. And we have to be careful. Do you know what hunters do? They hunt. They capture. They kill. That's what they do. This woman or this man who has ill intent for you, the only goal is to capture prey, to hunt you down. And this is not accidental, this is purposeful. Snares don't get on the, you know, on the ground by themselves. Nets don't get places all by themselves. This is purposeful. And men and women of our society do not give a rip about this. Instead, thinking that you are, oh, oh, I will be able to protect myself. You will not. There are too many traps and snares for you to dodge. It's impossible unless you fear God fully and completely. There's only one way that you can dodge it. To make sure that you fear God. He knows that this temptation is coming for us all. It's the one who pleases God who escapes. It's the one who loves God who escapes. It's the humble who escapes. It's the ones who care about the kingdom and its coming rather than your own personal kingdom that escapes. There's snares and there's traps. That's being said. The sinner is the one who's taken and trapped. And men and women, I don't want us to be trapped anymore. The sensuality of our culture is killing us. The sensuality and the temptations that are going on inside the bride of Christ right now are killing us and trapping us and ensnaring us and chaining us. These are images of slavery. These are images of being in complete domination. 
And yet we are too casual with these things. What Solomon's warning is for us not to give into temptation, but deliver us from evil for your kingdom. And so if you've got temptations in your life, we would encourage you to use this day as a platform to complete the sentence that he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Maybe, just maybe, this is a day where you want to escape and you want to lay down those temptations. The second thing is actually something that he didn't find. He sought it, and he didn't find it, because it's very, very rare. So verse 28 says, My soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found this thing. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Oh boy, I've been dreading this verse since we started studying this thing. And so Solomon's looking at the vast... uh, Uh, canvas of humanity. And he's like, here's what I see. I see 2,000 people, and I can only find one righteous man, and I can't find a woman anywhere that is righteous. It's his words, not mine. I'm just saying this is what he says, right? So is he being sexist, or is he being a misogynist, or those types of things? I don't think so, because he's trying to get to our math here. Do you know what one divided by 2,000 is? If you've got 1,000 men and 1,000 women and all you can find is one righteous person among the lot, it's point zero 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 five. What he's trying to say, ain't none of you any good, okay? That is what he's really saying. So it sounds a little sexist, right? But in that culture, if he had said, yeah, and I can't find a woman anywhere, right? That would not have been as glaring. But when he allows and connects both masculinity and femininity together and says, about the lot of you, I can't find but one. What he's saying is, this thing is rare. I cannot find it. It's impossible to find. Point zero 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 five means that nobody can brag. We're all overly wicked. We just can't do it. And then lastly, it says that we are doubt, uh, we're doused with these things called evil schemes. Verse 29 says this. See? This alone I found, that God made man upright. But they have sought many schemes, sought out many schemes. Verse 29 is actually attached to verse 25, which is the beginning of the second section. Remember verse 25 through 29 And so this idea of the schemes of things, this is actually creating a bracket for us. And that's why this is the conclusion, concluding thought. This is what I found alone. This alone is what I found. This is what is of most importance. This is the thing that's for sure. That God has made you and I upright. He's actually made us righteous. And so when we have sought out many schemes, and when we have led ourselves into temptation, it's not God who we can blame. It's not God we can blame for our wickedness in the world. God is not to blame for our lack of uprightness in the world. You see, we have sought, and that's the word that I want to draw to your attention. You and I pursue overly wicked. We have sought out many schemes. 
God has made us upright. And yet, we understand that our bentness, our sin, did not come from him. It came from us wanting to be God himself. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they were made in God's image and likeness, and yet they ran from that because they wanted to, quote, be like God. God made us. But the schemes and the deviation and the temptations to, quote, be like God are so powerful that it failed us miserably. So instead of being wise and becoming wise, we actually suffered a long and hard death. Adam and Eve fell. They ran. They hid full of sin and shame. We then move to the next story and we see the same thing. More and more depravity, more and more sin. It just heaps up like waves in an ocean over and over and over and over. Man and his schemes and women and his schemes and societies and their schemes over and over and over with this pursuit to seek out these schemes that we are doing it over and over and over. And the, the seeking or the being sought is to be like God, to reject him fully and completely. This is our aim in life is to be like God. And what Solomon is saying and God is saying is that it's not this it's going to end in a terrible terrible destruction we like sheep have gone astray all of us we've all turned to our own ways and our own devices the gospel in the old testament reads a little bit like this verse 20 surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins Merit was not the only one to die at an early age. And neither was Cain or Stephen or other missionaries. There was another person whose life was snuffed out too early. And that, of course, was our Lord and Savior Jesus in his early 30s, who had done nothing wrong, and yet the waves of wickedness and the wicked schemes of this world collapsed on him and killed him. He was in the prime of his life, and yet he died. He died in his excruciating death, and he died in his righteousness. He died at the hands of crowds of people who sang Hosanna, Hosanna, just five days earlier. He died at the hands of one of his best friends who kissed him on the cheek just 12 hours earlier. This is excessive and perfect righteousness that found death way too early. There is no one righteous, no, not one. None of us can get to perfection by ourselves. And that's why Jesus says it very clearly. I've come not to pursue the righteous. I've come to pursue sinners. And so that's why Jesus had to come. He is the one righteous person in all of Scripture, that have done everything on our behalf and for us. He's come to seek out the sheep that have gone astray. He's the one who's pursued sinners on our behalf. I want you to go to the prayer corner if you've fallen into temptation. But more importantly than that is your relationship with Jesus. Is for you to understand that you are not the righteous one in the equation. Instead, you are the one that has to be pursued. 
You can't seek it out. If you seek, if you will seek out evil schemes and it will lead to your destruction. And so men and women, we would have you consider Christ this morning who has come to bear fully and completely in great perfection to give you the righteousness that you cannot obtain. It has to be given to you by Jesus himself. And that's why we walk toward this table. We walk toward the table of remembrance because we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. You see, he knew no sin, and yet he became sin for us. The night that he was betrayed, he took a piece of bread like this, and he tore it, and he says, this is my body given for you. This is one that's supposed to be fully and complete and never torn, never ripped. And what Jesus says is, I will gladly be given for you. And in the same way, he took a chalice of wine and he poured it and he gave it to his friends. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant given and poured out for you and for your behalf. This is the picture of righteousness. This is what you and I should seek. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek not the wicked schemes of this world, but seek after Jesus and Jesus alone. So men and women, let me pray for us. And when we end our prayer, there's going to be men in all four corners of the room. And we would have you, if, if you believe in Jesus, for you to come and partake of what he has done, for you to seek out Jesus. However, if you're far from Jesus, if you're far from him and you know it, and today has been just a day of realism, we would love for you to go back to the back to our prayer team. If you're struggling with some of these temptations, you want today to be the end of those things and you want to start afresh anew, we would encourage you to confess your sins one to another, that you would be healed. Use the prayer team. Use that corner to be healed. Let's pray. Jesus, these are weighty days for us, and we want you, Lord Jesus, to be the king and the ruler of them all. Father, forgive us and the schemes that we pursue. Forgive us now that we have too quickly looked to our own devices and we have forgotten you. Help us this morning to consider Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So go ahead and stand, everyone. Um, uh, if you're new to Redstone, just know that uh, we come to the table every single week and we partake of this meal together. And the reason we do it together is because we all are sinners and we're all short of the glory of God. And so what we, you will find is you're going to see little pockets of people gathering together to pray over this meal uh, in remembrance of Jesus. So go ahead and partake in the meal as you see fit.